This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. So we're still on COVID-19 lockdown in France. We're allowed out a kilometre from home to shop and exercise. So we have to take a time-stamped form. So after four weeks, the routine, like for most, is getting uninspiring. Our elderly neighbour just rang the doorbell though and left a letter and a random book. The letter says, today I am not yet contaminated. The book is for your leisure time. My 12 little children are living in Paris, in Lyon, one in Taiwan, one in New Zealand, and two in Antibes, but they can't get to me for fear of contaminating me. Your neighbor, 87 years old, very quiet days. Uh, the book is by James Thompson, an 18th century Scottish poet I've never heard of. He became one of the most popular poets of the early 19th century, although is now largely forgotten. He actually wrote the lyrics to Rule Britannia, but his most famous work at the time was a long poem called The Castle of Indolence. It describes a wizard who's lured guests into indulgence, indolence and laziness in his luxurious castle. While enticing at first, the idleness of the wizard's guests leads inevitably to problems. And in the second canto, the knight of arts and industry destroys the castle and frees what's become prisoners in the dungeon. When the poem was written in 1758, two things were happening. Commerce, industry and innovation were expanding leading towards the Industrial Revolution. But prosperity was also leading to concerns about overindulgence, luxury, and the immorality of rentier capitalism and the appropriation of wealth. At the time Thompson was writing, there was also a discussion in England about the benefits of quietness, of calm repose. Lord Shaftesbury wrote about the joys of retirement and reflection for the mind. Thompson, though, disagreed. Work is hard, gruelling even, but the alternatives are worse. In The Castle of Indolence, he writes, Without and that would come an heavier bale, loose life, unruly passions and diseases pale. The castle becomes a metaphor for the self. The question, can idleness be good? Does it spawn creativity? Or is it action that leads to discovery and innovation?
Plato said that inspiration is a kind of madness. To the ancient Greek philosopher, creativity was a kind of divine inspiration. It came from outside the limited understanding of men, a burst of lightning not reducible to human reason. Almost 2,000 years later, the mathematician Henri Poncler influentially argued that creativity felt like swarms of ideas combining randomly in his unconscious, followed by the conscious selection of one of them according to aesthetic criteria. To Poncler then, unlike Plato, creativity came from inside the person, but was still guided by aesthetic criteria trends, standards, social norms, histories, on the outside, that is, determined by society in some way. But how is that aesthetic criteria determined? What makes this a better example of creativity than this? Almost all psychologists and philosophers agree that creativity must be both original and valuable. This, although sometimes contested, is likely the best definition of creativity we have. Original, valuable. But how is value defined? Who or what decides what is and isn't valuable? Good art arises out of a history of what is beautiful or insightful and why. Good music is the product of a good understanding of instruments, of lyrical insight. Good literature says something about the cultural and societal attitudes of the time it's written in, understands the tropes of its language. Take one theory, for example, the institutional theory of art. It argues that the art we get is the art we get because the experts who validate it, promote it, encourage it, all like similar themes and trends, and so are more likely to choose certain pieces and artists. In other words, it's those experts that select which art is art, not any new artist. All of these things exist outside of the creative individual. Creative standards are the product of the social context, and the individual studies them, chooses from them, is a product of them. But if it comes from inside someone too, or is divinely inspired, a moment of madness, as Plato argued, where does the originality spring from? How does originality, something completely new, arise, as if from nowhere? If you paint an original masterpiece, where does the uniqueness arise out of? How can something be created from Nothing. Okay, so let's think about intention. Consciously intending to do something. When I plan out a video, its individual parts don't appear out of nowhere. They're planned with some kind of intention. This means the plan and process are teleological. They have a predetermined end. Creative works are often teleological. Picasso made many plans and sketches and drafts before starting a final piece. But according to our definition, remember, creativity must be original, again, appearing as if from nowhere. At some point, often indefinable, 
there's a spark before. There's always a point before the end has been realised. The inexplicable moment where a thought pops, seeps, rolls, grows into your head. The Castle of Indolence portrays a complicated relationship between quietude and creativity. On the one hand, peace and thought are required for innovation. On the other, indolence can lead to inactivity and simple laziness. Thompson asks how innovation can arise from indolence. He writes, Forgive me if my trembling pen displays what never yet was sung in mortal lays, but how shall I attempt such arduous string, I who have spent my nights and nightly days in this soul-deadening place, loose loitering? Ah, how shall I, for this, uprear my molted wing? He emphasises the temptations of indolence and luxury. He goes on, Oft quilts on quilts, on carpets carpet spread, and couches stretch around in seemly band, and endless pillows rise to prop the head. Thompson, in the end, argues against indolence as the knight destroys the wizard's castle. In short, for Thompson, it's activity, movement, industry that leads to creativity. That spark requires the influence of worldly inspiration. Of course, creativity comes from hard work, skill, graft, and as we've seen, understanding the history of the field you're trying to be creative in. Knowing the usefulness of something requires some knowledge of the world. It requires erudition. There are no shortcuts. But originality and innovation can't arise from the blind routine of monotonous work. There has to be another ingredient. Thompson actually influenced one of the most famous poets of all time, William Wordsworth. In 1802, Wordsworth carried a copy of The Castle of Indolence around with him. He was feeling continually guilty for his indulgent mood that year. He wondered whether Thompson was right about the corrupting influence of indolence. Wordsworth wondered whether idleness could be joyful, worthy for its own sake and so productive. He was defensive because he was creatively inspired by indolence, by the peaceful reflection of nature and tranquility. In the poem Resolution and Independence, he says, my whole life I have lived in pleasant thought, as if life's business were a summer mood, as if all needed things would come unsought. To genial faith, still rich in genial good, but how can he expect that others should build for him, sow for him, and at his call love him, who for himself will take no heed at all? But in our Foxton notebook, Wordsworth writes, What if I floated down a pleasant stream, and now I'm landed and the motion gone? Shall I reprove myself? Ah, no. The stream is flowing and will never cease to flow. Calm repose, quiet reflection, and peaceful indolence are equally important for creativity as work, study, 
and industriousness. It seems likely that creativity is the balancing between and the resulting friction from both activity and reflection. Activity can be the predictable and monotonous rhythm of routine, but thought and tranquility are required to combine the random swarm of ideas, as Poncler put it. In the search for Satori and creativity, E.P. Torrance writes that highly creative people combine opposites. They seem to be, he says, both more masculine and feminine more independent in thought and yet more open to suggestions, more conforming and more non-conforming, more playful and more serious. The lesson is that if you're too disciplined, too stuck in a routine, too industrious, insert the antithesis and vice versa. But there is one more element that seems to run through all philosophies of creativity, randomness. Plato's divine inspiration was random, couldn't be quantified, as was Poncler's swarms. For Thompson, indolence brought routine and the sheltering from random activity and experience in the world, whereas for Wordsworth, the opposite was true. Industry encouraged routine, while idle reflection encouraged flashes of random creativity. In an essay on randomness and creativity, Bob Stanish writes that life is a random selection. From billions of random cells, one is randomly selected and a structure begins. And that structure extends its structure either in a competitive struggle or without struggle. Its continuance and further expansion is determined by the forces of randomness that conceived the structure. Even the structures that promote the process of thinking and problem solving adhere to this premise. Aleatoricism is the inclusion of chance into the creative process, the flipping of a coin or the rolling of a dice to decide which note to include, the picking up of random books to inspire poetry. So our tentative, flexible and always questionable ingredients for creativity look something like this. Study and knowledge, activity and industry, tranquility and reflection, tension and opposites, and finally, always remember to add a little bit of randomness. If you like these videos, I need your help, and here's my request. If you think you get the same value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee, then please consider pledging just a dollar per video. That's three to four dollars per month to keep this channel going. You can even limit your pledge to one dollar a month, and if you pledge five dollars, I'll add your name to the credits. To those that already support Then and Now, thank you so much. This channel just wouldn't exist without you. You can also hit like, share, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. All of these things really contribute to helping Then and Now grow. Thanks for watching and see you next week.